have something to show you today. Got a treat here. Maybe you haven't seen one of these before. I want to show this to you. Now, you can look at it, but I'm going to ask you not to touch it because it's very expensive. Okay? Let me show you. Yeah. I can tell you're impressed, and I can tell I know what you're thinking right now. You're thinking, hey, Brett, I didn't know you could afford a pineapple. Uh, how much money are you making? Well, I, I can afford a pineapple or two every now and then. And, 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 and as you can see, it's, it's, it's from the size. This was a costly pineapple. I'm sure you're pretty impressed with this display of wealth, this display of, uh, of, of my success. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're not today, but if, if this was 17, if this was the year 1718 instead of the year 2018, you would be really impressed with me owning a pineapple because in the 1700s, in the 16 and 1700s, a pineapple was a sign of wealth. A pineapple was a status symbol, and if you owned one, you were considered to be extremely wealthy. In fact, a pineapple just like this one in the 1700s, this could cost you the equivalent of about $7,000 today. $7,000 for a pineapple. I got this at Walmart last night. I paid $3 and a penny for this. That's including tax. $3 and a penny. But can you imagine $7,000 for a pineapple? Now, let's say you wanted to impress your friends. You wanted to show off. You wanted to show off your wealth and make everybody really impressed. You're going to have a big party but you couldn't quite afford a pineapple. You know, you're, not, you're doing okay, but you're not doing quite that good. Not a problem, because you could rent a pineapple for the evening. You could actually rent a pineapple back in those days for a, for a party that you were going to throw that evening. And, and the reason you could rent them was because they were so expensive, nobody dared to eat them. All they did was buy them, and they would put them up on the mantle, or they'd put them as a centerpiece in the middle of the house, and, and people would come in and they'd look at them, and they would sit there on the mantle, or they would sit there on the table, and they would rot. Nobody bothered to eat them. They were too expensive. Never to be eaten, never to be enjoyed, simply to be admired. Please, though, do not touch my pineapple. It's very expensive. We've been looking at the fruit of the Spirit. You remember the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace. And I've been thinking a lot about peace. I've been thinking about what a wonderful gift peace is. It's an amazing gift. It's an amazing promise. The Bible says a lot about peace. We call Jesus the Prince of Peace. And I think that's a wonderful promise because Jesus is my Prince, and therefore where my Prince reigns, He will bring peace to my life. We looked at Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. We've looked at it several weeks. Philippians 4, 7 tells us that the peace of God surpasses all understanding. And so, you know, there are a lot of things that I can understand. There's some things in my life I've, I, I can understand. And some of the things that I can understand make me anxious. Some of the things that I can understand cause me a little bit of pain. But I will never understand the peace of God, and yet it guards my heart. It guards my mind. It, it, it prevents that anxiety. The peace of God is greater 
than anything that I can understand. And so we know that, that peace is costly. We talk about the, the price of peace, $7,000 for a pineapple. We talk about the price of peace, and we know that the price of peace, Jesus purchased our peace with His own blood. We talk about peace. We appreciate peace. We tell people about peace. We might even boast in our peace. But do we really live out our peace? Do we partake of it? Do we, do we take it in? Or do we just sing nice songs about it? Do we just... Uh, do we just read Scripture verses about it? Do we truly understand peace? Philippians, excuse me, Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, verse 15 says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let it rule in your hearts. That's pretty involved. If something is going to rule in your hearts, that's pretty involved. If, if, if the peace of Christ is to rule in my hearts, that means the peace of Christ gets the say-so. The peace of Christ gets to make the decisions, the, the decisions my, uh, about my actions, what I'm going to do, what I'm going to think, where I'm going to go, how I'm going to treat other people, how I'm going to talk about other people. The peace of Christ gets to make the decision. And if the peace of Christ is ruling, I will seek those things that produce more peace in my life and in the lives of others. Do, do we do that? Do we let the peace of Christ rule? Or do we just talk about it? Sing about it? Display it? And let it rot? We're going to look at Colossians 3 today. Verses 12-17. through 17. Those blue Bibles in front of you, it's page 984. If you've got a smartphone with you and you're using the YouVersion app, we've got all the Scriptures and all the notes right there for you. If peace is truly going to rule then it's more than just something that we display. It's more than just something that we show off or sing songs about or quote Scriptures about. It means we're going to have to take it in. It means we're going to have to devour our peace. We're going to have to let it nurture us. We're even going to let the peace of Christ sweeten us, aren't we? It's going to sweeten us. And so, I'm going to tell you, that's not always going to be easy. That's not always going to be easy. But the choice is, do you let the peace of Christ rule? Or do you let the peace of Christ rot? And when the peace of Christ rules, your heart looks a lot like Jesus' heart. In fact, when the peace of Christ rules, you will find yourself acting more like Jesus. That's because peace begins with the call to do the work of Christ. We do the things that Jesus does when the peace of Christ rules. Look at our verse, verse 12, Colossians 3, verse 12. Paul says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And I want to stop right there because I want to ask, does that list sound familiar? Have you seen something like that before? Yeah, that sounds kind of familiar. We see lists like this in the Bible and other places. In fact, there's a list like that, very similar to that in Galatians chapter 5, and we call that list the fruit of the Spirit. And some of the same characteristics that we see in the fruit of the Spirit are in this list here in, Galatians, or in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. We, we see patience in the fruit of the Spirit. We see patience mentioned here. We see kindness in the fruit of the Spirit. We see kindness mentioned here. There are others that are also mentioned. Meekness and humility and compassionate hearts and 
those all mesh really well with what we see in the, the list of the fruit of the Spirit. And it ought to look familiar to us because really, in many ways, what verse 12 is talking about is the character of Jesus Himself. We would use these words to describe Jesus. We would say He is compassionate, He is kind, He is humble, He is meek, and, and He is patient. We would use those words to describe Jesus, the Prince of Peace. And if His peace rules in our hearts, then those characteristics ought to be seen in us as well. And in fact, the, the very next verse tells us what that looks like in the most practical terms. Verse 13 says, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Now let's be honest. Some of you want to shut me off right now because I'm talking about forgiveness. And when I start talking about forgiveness, I'm, I'm going to meddle, right? I'm going to start meddling when I talk about forgiveness. And some of you would like to tell me as I'm talking about forgiveness, you would want to tell me how badly you've been hurt. You'd want to tell me what others have done to you, how they have hurt you, how they have hurt ones that you love, and how you cannot forgive those people. And I'm not denying your hurt. I'm not denying your pain. I don't think Paul is denying it, but, but what Paul is saying is it's not about you. It, it's about Jesus. It, it's all about Jesus. It's not about the person who hurt you either. It's, it's about Jesus. And what Paul is asking us to look at there in verse 13 is, have you benefited from the forgiveness of Jesus? And absolutely you have. You, for, you have benefited from Christ's forgiveness. You have accepted that gift. And I don't think you'd be here if you hadn't accepted that gift, or at least if you weren't looking for that, or if you were not desiring His forgiveness. But what Paul says is, for the peace of Christ to rule in your life, peace gets to call the shots. Peace gets to tell you how you're going to react and how you're going to treat other people. Peace gets to call the shots, which I think is good news. Because verse 13 says, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. <laughs> I like that. Because what that tells me is, complaining does not get to call the shots. My complaints don't get to call the shots. Your complaints don't get to call the shots. No one else's complaints get to call the shots. Forgiveness gets to call the shots. He goes on there in verse 13, and he says, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. The work of Christ becomes your work. You give what He gave. You forgive as He forgave. The name Corey Ten Boom, I hope it's familiar with some of you. It's been a while, but I'd like to think that some of you older types <laughs> might remember the name Corey Ten Boom. She wrote a classic work of Christian literature called The Hiding Place. It was her story, the story of her family. Corey and her father and her sister Betsy hid Jews from the Nazis during World War II. And eventually, of course, they were caught and they were sent to internment camps. Corey and her sister were sent to Ravensbrook. Her father was in another camp, as I recall. and Her father passed away while he was in prison. Corey's sister Betsy got sick and she passed away. And Corey Ten Boom was left alone. Her family was gone. After the war was over, Corey wrote her story, The Hiding Place. And she began traveling around and speaking and 
you can see the hiding place every now and then. It shows up on TV. They made a movie out of it. And I just sit there and ball and ball whenever I watch it. But uh, Corey would travel around and tell her story. She went to churches and community gatherings and told her story. And as she told her story, she told the good news about Jesus. She told people about His forgiveness. And she would tell them that whatever you have done, Jesus can forgive it. He can take your sin and He can throw it into the bottom of the sea. And she was in Munich one night when she told that story. And as she was talking with the crowd as they were leaving, she saw Him across the room. It had been years, but she recognized that man who was walking towards her. She she noticed he had gotten older and he was definitely not wearing the uniform that he used to look he used to wear but there was no mistake that was her guard from Ravensbrook and he was approaching her and he came up to her and he said that was a fine message Fraulein. he said and how true it is as you said that god has taken our sins and cast them into the bottom of the sea and he said you mentioned ravensbrook as the camp that you were interned at I was a guard at Ravensbrook. And it was at that moment that Corey Tenboom realized that this man did not remember her. She couldn't forget him. Every day, his memory haunted her. That's what unforgiveness does, doesn't it? Somebody slights us, somebody says something that offends us, somebody does something to us or someone that we love, and they probably never think about it again, do they? But we think about it every day. We remember every day. He did not remember her. And he said, since those days, I've become a Christian. And he said, I know that God has forgiven me of the cruel things that I did at Ravensbrook. But, he asked, he said, will you forgive me? And he stuck his hand out for Corey Tenboom to take. And as she writes down the story, she said there was a long moment between the two of them. And in that moment, Corey prayed for strength. And finally, she said, I forgive you, brother. She called him brother. She said, I forgive you with all my heart. And you know, when she wrote about that encounter, she admitted she did not forgive him from her own strength. And you need to understand, you never forgive someone from your own strength. It is always the strength that Jesus supplies. And in that moment, that long moment between them, Corey Tenboom said, Jesus, I can't do this, but I can give you my hand. And you can take my hand and you can place it in his hand. And she said that's how she was able to forgive that man by letting Jesus do it through her. That's how it's done. It's not from your character. It's from Jesus' character. And that's what we understand here is that peace comes wrapped in the character of Christ. Verse 14, Paul writes, and above all these, above all these what? Well, above all these characteristics, above, uh, above compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and above bearing with each other and above forgiving each other, above all these, he says, Put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. We were gone last weekend. We, uh, we needed a weekend away. We took a weekend off and uh, got away. We didn't get too far away, but we got far enough away from you people. Uh, ooh, I say that out loud? Uh, no. no. Love you guys. Uh, we had to get away for a little, little bit. And uh, I packed. I was packed by Wednesday. Um, 
I'm really good at packing. If you ever want me to come over and pack up your clothes for you, I'd be glad to come over and do it. I'm perfect at packing. I do a great job of packing. I had everything packed and ready to go. But for some reason, when in my head I was thinking vacation, and I was thinking warm weather, and I was thinking, it's April, it's going to be nice. It wasn't nice. It snowed on us, and the wind blew, and I think the warmest it ever got uh, while we were away was about 40 degrees, and I packed the lightest jacket I've got, the lightest one, and everything else was fine, you know, I packed some flannel shirts, I, I packed, some, packed some undershirts, packed, packed good socks, packed good shoes, everything was good, but that, that light jacket just did not work, and it did not bring everything together, and as a result, I did not have as good of a time as I could have had, because I was shivering all the time, and if I had just packed the right thing to wear on top, everything would have gone so much better. I want you to hear that in Paul's words here, because he's talked about the character of Christ, and We've talked about qualities that we should have, and we're going to keep talking about qualities that we should have as the, the fruit of the Spirit. But none of these qualities are designed to stand on their own. And in fact, if you force yourself to be compassionate, if you force yourself to be kind, or if you force yourself to be, to be patient, sooner or later, someone is going to come along and they're going to frustrate you. And they're going to just work all the kindness out of you. And you're going to be miserable. They're going to aggravate you. And you're going to find yourself growing cold. You were never intended to do this on your own. And so Paul says, above all of it, put on love. What does he mean by putting on love? It sounds like put it on like, a, like an overcoat. And that's exactly what he's saying. Above all of these because it's not about how much you can forgive. It's not about how kind you can be. Put on the love of Christ. It's about knowing that no matter what you've got, it's not enough. So wrap yourself in the love of Christ. Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 13, verse 14, where he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the way he uses the phrase there, it's like getting dressed every day. Every day you're going to get up and you're going to put on Christ. Every day you're going to put on Christ. It's that imagery of just getting dressed every day. Remember to clothe yourself in Christ. Clothe yourself in his character, his heart, his love, his peace. Some people have said to me, some people have just come right out and said to me, I cannot forgive. I can't do it. I can't forgive that. And I believe that you believe that's true. I I believe you believe that is true, but, but I also know that you've been lied to. I've also known that, that you've been lied to when you've been told that you can't forgive. Now, how do I know that that's a lie? I know that's a lie because, well, let me ask you this. Let me ask you a question. Is Jesus a liar? Okay, now, let me just stop and say for a second, um, when you answer that question, it ought to be with enough confidence that you could just shout out the answer because there's no way that Jesus is a liar. God does not lie. Jesus is not a liar. So if someone ever asks you, hey, is Jesus a liar? You should probably say no, like kind of like that, okay? Well, do it your own way. But let me just ask again. Is Jesus a liar? No. Well, you mostly, yeah. Like, no, right. No, Jesus is not a liar. What does Jesus tell you? What did Jesus tell you? Jesus says in John chapter 14, 
Verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Jesus does not lie. And so you can have peace through Jesus. Colossians 3, verse 13 tells us that forgiveness, forgiving others as the Lord has forgiven you, is part of acquiring the peace of Christ. And so either Jesus is a liar, and He's not, or we've been lied to when we've been told that we can't forgive. So my question is, who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe Jesus? Or are you going to believe the one that's lied to you? Who has told you, who has hurt you, who has said that this is so bad you cannot forgive it? So if we're going to trust His promise, and if we're going to let His peace rule over our lives, we're going to take His work into ourselves, we're going to wrap ourselves in His love, and we're going to see that peace, the peace of Christ in my life touches others when we focus our lives on the Word of Christ. Verse 15 is really the heart of what we're looking at. This is the verse we've been focusing on the whole time. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. That is the call. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. But I want you to notice what goes hand in hand with that verse. Verse 16. Verse 16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You hear the connection there? Let the peace of Christ dwell in your hearts. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. These go hand in hand. They go together. Now I want you to understand when Paul writes the phrase, the Word of Christ, we're still about 400 years away from having a Bible. So he can't be talking about the Bible. He's not telling the Colossians to read something that has not been written yet. Okay, So he's not talking about, uh, he's not talking about the Bible. What does he mean? What could he have in mind when he says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly? I think what Paul is talking about is the message of Jesus. The Gospel of Jesus. The good news of Jesus. But it's not just the message of the cross. It's not just the message of the empty tomb, which we celebrated two weeks ago uh, with Easter. It's not just about Jesus' saving work of all mankind, but His saving work toward you. It's about what Jesus has done for you. Look at it again, verse 16. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let it live in you. Let it exist in you. Let it find its place of honor in your life. That, that phrase, dwell in you richly, it's, it's, it's a phrase that would be used of a treasured possession. Let's say you have this amazing treasured possession in your home. Some some major thing that you've got. It's very expensive. It's very costly. It's very beautiful. You're not going to hide it in a closet somewhere, right? Hide it under a bushel? No. You're gonna let it shine. Right, yeah. You're not going to hide it in a closet. You've got a major treasure, amazing treasure of incredible wealth. What are you going to do? You're going to put it in the middle of your house. You're going to put it on a, on a stand where everybody can look at it. You're going to put it in a place of honor where everybody who comes through your house, their eyes are going to be drawn to that treasure. Their eyes are going to be drawn to your peace. They are going to look at that thing <laughs> that you treasure and you treasure above all else. They're going, to, they're going to look at your amazing treasure and they're going to ask, oh, where did you get that? You're not going to say Walmart, by the way. 
won't. You won't say, Walmart? Which Walmart? No. Um, they're going to ask questions about that treasure and where you found it. Oh, it's beautiful. And you're going to tell them how much it cost you. You're going to tell them that you had to fight for that. I'm getting my picture taken holding a pineapple right now. This is going to end up on Facebook, isn't it? All right. It's my treasure. <laughs> Social media is wonderful. You're going to tell people how much you spent on it? You're going to tell them where you found it. Oh, I had to go looking for this. You're going to say things like, when I found it, I went and sold everything I had. It cost me everything. And I bought it. And now I have it. And it's mine. The good news is, that treasure doesn't actually rot. <laughs> and you can partake of that treasure. You're going to tell people how you fought for it, how you traded everything, and just what it means to you. And you know, it's not just Jesus' story. It's your story. It's how He touched your life. It's how He changed your life. It's how you're not the same person you used to be. It's about how since you've met Jesus, you've known His love and you've learned to show His love. You've known His forgiveness and you have extended His forgiveness to others. You don't just display it, you live it out and it impacts whatever you do. Whatever you do. In fact, verse 17, and whatever you do, whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Have you noticed how many times in this very short passage, how many times the idea of thankfulness has appeared? Thankfulness has been alongside everything that we do in this passage. In, in verse 15, thankfulness is alongside the peace of Christ. In verse 16, thankfulness is alongside the word of Christ, the message of Christ, the, the gospel that saved you, the gospel that you treasure. And in verse 17, it's alongside everything that we do. Whatever we do, whatever we say, however we show the gospel, however we show that peace rules in our life, thankfulness is there. Because when that happens, when, when the peace of Christ rules in your heart, when the name of Christ is ruling in your life, when the word of Christ is everything that you have, you cannot help but be thankful. I've had a question. And I, ha I don't have an answer yet, but I've had a question for the last few weeks about pineapples. And my question is this. During the during the 17th and, eight, uh, 17th and 18th century, when pineapples would cost $7,000 and people would buy them and sit them in their home and just let them rot, did anyone ever taste one? <laughs> I mean, as expensive as they were, did, did anyone ever actually eat one? Did they, did they ever taste? Because I don't know if you guys know this, but these things are pretty good. I like them way too much. <sighs> Did they have any clue as to how good they were? Did they simply own them? Did they simply display them and then just let them rot? And that makes me wonder how many people today have the promise of peace through Jesus Christ. But they have no idea what that peace tastes like. They have no idea what that peace feels like. They have no idea because they've never truly wrapped themselves in the love of Christ They've never brought themselves to say those words, I forgive you, brother. I forgive you from the bottom of my heart. They've claimed peace, sang a lot of nice songs about peace, and then they've just kind of let it rot in their lives. 
But when the peace of Christ rules, your heart looks a lot like Jesus' heart. And so today, I don't just want to ask if you know that truth. I want to ask if you've tasted the sweetness of that truth. Have you taken it in? Have you let it nourish you? Have you let it change you? Let it make your heart like the heart of Jesus. Let the peace of Christ rule. Don't let it rot. Let's stand and pray. Lord Jesus, Savior, Prince of Peace, we have known Your promise of peace. And we have been through times of of stress and loss and pain and trouble. And we've had a peace that passes all understanding and that could only come from You. But what we haven't always done is extend that peace to others. While we've held it up as a valuable treasure in in our hearts, we've not always allowed it to rule in our hearts. We've not allowed it to rule in our relationships and in the way we speak to others, the way we speak about others, the way we treat others, the way we think of others. We have not acted very much like You at all. And so as the fruit of the Spirit fills us, let it transform us. Let it give us hearts that are not only at peace with You, but hearts that seek peace with others. Let us live out the peace that You died for. Let us show them the peace that You offer. And it's in Your name we pray. Amen. Go in peace.